From Buffalo, Toronto, Public Media, and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our program on race, education, and issues the region must face after the top shootings on May 14th. Today, Black women typically make just 67 cents for every dollar paid to white, non-Hispanic men. The pandemic and this, and this racial reckoning have really laid bare a lot of the sort of structural and systemic inequities that are around us. And if we're, if we are not going to fix them now when they are so clear to us, when are we going to fix them? Also ahead, homeowner education programs. Mark Overall from the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals. Attorney Jason Daniels on life in a white corporate world. Being in college, you know, as soon as you get to like junior, senior year, you just don't see many people that look like you. And then, you know, in law school, there's not a ton. And in business school, there, there's even fewer. And Karima Morris with Bury the Violent. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for being with us. We begin with Dave Debo and Karima Morris. I want to go back to 2013. Karima Morris realized that there needs to be more resources spent on finding missing, runaway, and exploited and trafficked community members. So she takes the step of founding the Bury the Violence Initiative. Since then, it has expanded to work on everything from ways to memorialize homicide victims, to provide aid for their families, even fund some of their headstones. Karima, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Statistically, is there a disparity between the recovery rates of missing runaways or trafficked kids of color and the rest of the population? Absolutely. There is a lack of information. Often parents don't want to share because of the way our children are viewed when they run away as if they don't count or they're often viewed as uh, running away with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So sometimes we hold back that information. I'm picturing a scenario, though, if if it's uh, suspected to be a runaway, where the police will probably not get involved anyway. Oh, she's just a runaway. She'll show up again. And that's the issue. Every child that runs away doesn't run because they want to. And not every child, like my niece was missing. She wasn't a runaway, but they listed her as a runaway. And this is how you or why you founded the organization back in 2013. Your niece was missing. You saw a gap and said, I can help here. So in 2013, Lanasia Rollerson is my oldest niece. She went missing and we reached out for help. She was listed as a runaway. We told them she didn't run away. We noticed the clues and the signs. And ultimately, when you know your child, you know if they leave things behind, they didn't leave things they wanted to leave. And that's how we knew she didn't run away. Needless to say. If she was running away, she would have packed a backpack. Yep. She she needs her snacks. She needs her smell goods and her clean underwear. None of that (laughs) stuff was taken, you know. So we knew it was a problem. Ultimately, uh, what what was the situation? Lanasia was, she, was she was murdered. 
Um, I'm sorry. Thank you. So she had um, was said to be at a party, which was around the corner from the house. And the slack and the feedback was, where were her parents? Well, no parent sleeps in front of their door all night to keep their kids or lays in front of windows. And as children, we all did something mm-hmm. against what our parents believed were. It didn't give anyone a right to take her life. And that's exactly what they did. How was your group, or how were, then it was probably before the group, how were they involved? What did you do at the time? Well, actually, it started with me and my sister looking for her. We didn't leave any stone unturned. And actually, we were getting people to tell us where she was at. We didn't know she was dead. So she was right in the backyard of the house that they said she was at. But the police told me it was a holiday and there was no detective. And this was Labor Day holiday. Since then, they have created more forces and things like that and resources available that work on holidays. With that being said, the information um, from the homeowner wasn't given. So they couldn't technically go in the house behind where we were told she was at. And she was actually there for three days. Uh, That's what was going to be the next question. Between the time she was missing and the time you found the body. Three days? Yes. So the police um, persuaded me to go for questioning or something when they actually were out there at the crime scene. They wanted me out the way. And they they had the tape out. And so by the time I got out of the police station, um, everybody was calling and telling me that there's yellow tape right where you guys were at. And we went there. And that's where she was. If this is painful, tell me to shut up and not ask the next question. I'm fine. Thank you. Out, outline outline what happened. Um, it was Sunday uh, morning, which she usually would go to church with her grandmother. And uh, my sister got up. She thought that Lanasia was at church. When everybody returned from church, it was a red flag. Where's Lanasia? So I worked at the Niagara Falls outlet. My sister called me and told me what was going on. I told her, file the police report, do whatever, I'm leaving. I'm closing the store if I have to. And I came to the city. Um, We instantly started going in the places that we thought she could be. We started searching around everywhere within the radius of that mile. Um, Then we started putting stuff on Facebook. We made flyers, and it just escalated. Stuff started coming in. And when I was asking for her by her name and showing her picture, the people in the community were using a different name. Mm. They were calling her two o'clock. So why? That's not her name. Her name is Lanasia. And then it dawned on me to ask, why are you calling her two o'clock? And they said, oh, that's the time we call her out. Who is we? And why are you calling her out? Yeah. Her house. Okay. And so that's the, you know, the dialogue that was kind of shut off in court because they were making her out to be a prostitute and not a child who could have been trafficked Mm. by her peers and her classmates. What has changed since then? You, as an aunt, started this effort to find her. These days, you support families who have missing kids. Do you do more now than you knew how to do back then? Absolutely. The experience uncovered a lot, a lot that still hasn't been said a lot about the trafficking that actually goes on in our communities and um, how we need to really take time to unravel the whole ball. So that part hasn't been uncovered, but I've learned how to more strategically find them, how to use the resources that we used 
like the kids and the social media, the kids talk. Rather, they're bragging on something or, you know, they're just leaving clues, the friends or the associates. So it's always important to watch your children's social media pages if they do have them. How big of a problem is trafficking, in your opinion? It's a catastrophe because you don't know the person next door that your child plays with. They go over there to eat. That person could be one of those in the link that's used as a house. So there was spaces where they fed kids, spaces where they partied, and these were parents, right? Mm. And so some people are comfortable with their children going to other people's houses. And these children were all linked back to her in grammar school as friends that she had grew up with. And you use the phrase a pipeline that really kind of describes it, I guess, right? It starts out maybe with dinner at the friend's house and just slides down that pipeline? Well, yeah. So um, they have sets or hangouts, things like that. And you think your child's going to a friend's, like, you know, old school. Mm. And it's just really a, a hot spot for the kids to hang out while they're waiting. Because 2 o'clock in the morning, who's calling out a 12 and 13-year-old child? In in your experience, and I know there might not be hard numbers, or the hard numbers that you have might be different than the ones the police have, but uh, in your experience, how often is a missing kid on the east side trafficked? So I can't speak to those numbers because at the end of the day, they're not the parents aren't comfortable with saying that, right? Okay. And sometimes they don't even have the awareness of why their quote-unquote runaway has ran. But you certainly believe that Fewer of them are runaways than get labeled as runaways. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You think as um, an uncle, a grandparent, a parent, that your child just wants to leave at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning out of their nice home into the community to encounter other people and then come back home and do it the same the next day? And I'm not trying to play the race card if it's not there to be played. But do you think that's what's going on, that, that the lack of um, police aggressiveness in chasing these cases is because these kids aren't going to be missed. They're just people of color. Well, I can't say that. So I can say it's a lack of resources. Okay. I can say that we have to push, and that's why I'm in the middle. It's a lot of red tape. I'm a green tape organization. It is an urgency to me to get your child home. And so where they may have other cases and other situations, me and my team take it upon ourselves to get that information out expediently. Karima Morris is with us. She's the executive director, founder of Bury the Violence Initiative. And uh, as you've been hearing, she talks about working with people who have lost their kids. Sometimes that loss is, as, as your initial story uh, unfolded, a homicide. You work yes. with families then to to ease their pain after the fact. Yes. So um, it's so easy to go into a case thinking it's going to be found and returned. And that's not always the case. Even as adults, when they go missing or we're looking for them, I end up helping families after they've been murdered or they're found deceased. And so I advocate for them with the funeral homes to make sure that the DA's office has a grant where they get up to $6,000. I make sure that they get that funding positioned the right way Mm. where 
the funeral home may want to give you a Cadillac, you need a Chevrolet. Right. Right. And so, and especially if the Chevy costs six thousand, but the other is ten. Right. Okay. So we try to make sure that they have the less um, stress on them as possible. We advocate for them. We honor their wishes. We go back and forth between those businesses and those vendors to make sure they have everything they need within a certain amount. And so some people have nothing. And just think about it. A homicide is unexpected. Mm. And then they have children left behind. The resources that they may have need to go to those children. Right? So... It just spins off to so many different areas that we end up working with families because each family has a unique need after that loss. The state has a crime victims compensation fund. Does that come into play? So they get up to $6,000. Oh, that's the 6000 you spoke of. It's okay. only for the funeral. It's not for the burial. Hence your name, Bury the Violence. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so... The burial, you know, entails them opening and closing the plot. Mm -hmm. You have to buy a plot. Right. Okay. Then you have to have it open and closed. Then you have to think about um, headstones and those things. So that's a whole separate entity. You have a separate foundation that helps with headstones and burial costs. So it's all tied into the same thing. One name. So we... um, would raise funds for headstones, and that way people have a way to memorialize and to decrease the street memorials. You know, when you're going to buy a home, like those young men could tell you, when you go to buy a home and you see bears, bottles, and balloons tied to poles in front of houses, that indicates it's homicide. If I turn a corner, that indicates this is what's going on in this neighborhood. So it decreases the property value. And you work with communities to get rid of these makeshift memorials to find something more permanent. So we went through the city and they have this program and we can do memorial gardens, right? We can do rocks. There's alternative ways to have memorials without it being that way, which You don't want a neon sign that says this is the site of a murder. Not that this is the site of a murder because people want to memorialize, but just the way that we do it, right? And so if it beautifies the neighborhood, that's great. It's okay to memorialize. I'm not saying that. So, But if you have bears that are wet and the kids Mm. come out at the bus stop and then it's these papers that's washed off and the bottles... That's not welcoming. It's not really what I want my child to see on their way to the bus stop every day to have that trauma. You know, that rock may not show exactly that memorial, but we know what it is. And as they grow older, they can understand. But it's it's a different way to honor the life of the one that was lost. This program obviously springs from the events on May 14th. And whenever I've talked to uh, different guests, sometimes they talk about otherization, the idea that the top shooter was able to drive from, the accused shooter was able to drive from Binghamton and seek out a neighborhood where people had been otherized, where it didn't really matter and he could he could just do what he did. Same situation here? Is there some otherization going on, do you think? I can't say that because often it's black-on-black crime. Okay. Right? And so there's not a white person coming in our community and trafficking Okay, so we have control over that when we get to those houses and we know those people and we have to have a voice in a safe space and where we could tell who's what Mm. in our neighborhood. So if we were 
otherized, it would be probably on a different level, not at this level. Okay. Talk to me about the community in general, beyond maybe the work that you do with Bury the Violence. Um, what do you think the biggest need right now is? A sense of ownership and belonging. Often people can tear up what they don't feel like they have a part of, right? So you could tear up a house that mm. is not yours. If you don't have a sense of ownership to that and you don't take pride in it, then what value is it to you? Karima Morris of Bury the Violence, btvbuffalo.org. The Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative has been working to put on financial literacy initiatives. Ayat Nieves and his brother Ahmed talked about it recently with Thomas O'Neill White. I think experience is key. So um, when I do these workshops, if I'm not presenting, I choose somebody who has experience in this field, like real life experience, uh, not just someone who read about it or who you know took some classes about it, but someone who's done it and done it successfully. That's that's what's key is experience. Um, you're also quoted in the piece as saying that too many people are information hoarders. How is that a problem? How can it be solved? Um, the deciding factor for a lot of people um, is is information. So a lot of people, when they get good information, they don't want other people to be competitive against them because they operate in the sense that if this person is successful, I'm going to be less successful. And I don't really operate in that sense. I believe that we could be successful altogether as a community. So when I have good information, I like to share it with other people in the hopes that if they have good information, they share it back. So I believe we should all be sharing information and grow together. Sort of like a uh, rising tide lift all, lifts all boats theory? Yes, exactly. Um, again, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm here with Ahmad and Ayat Nieves. Um, this wasn't quite the career you envisioned when you graduated college. What did you have in mind as a career, uh, and what led you to create uh, BISC? Um, originally, I dreamt of either having a career in the nonprofit world or being um, a teacher. And after years, uh, after I graduated in years of working in the nonprofit world, I felt like a lot of them were ineffectual or just greatly overstated the importance in the world. And I was... First of all, I wasn't making that much money in the nonprofit world. I was stressed out. I felt a lot of the people were insincere people, and I felt like a lot of them were perpetuating the problems that they were claiming to fix. So I got burned on the nonprofit world. Um, there's not really one that I've worked at that I could say is that great. And that's not a diss to them. That's just a true feeling. So the reason I created... Um, uh, Buffalo Information Sharing Collective is because I had a vision of what I wanted to see in the world and I wasn't seeing it in my community so I was like if it's not there I'm not seeing it I'll do it I want to circle back to working for nonprofits in a second um, but <laughs> coming from me coming from a, a teaching family my brother is a teacher and my mom was a teacher. What led you away from teaching? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so I grad I graduated college. I got into the school system. I started like substitute teaching and just working with these kids and seeing these kids and like all the things that they go through with their family life. It was just too much and you know, I was I know some people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but I, I started looking at other teachers and, you know, same age as me. And I'm like, how long have you been teaching? They're like, three years. And I'm like, God, I was like, this person's like 26. And, you know, she looks like she's 35. They, they <laughs> like a lot of these teachers, they just look old and bad. And that's not an insult to them. It's just. But it takes a toll on you. It's, oh, they look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, uh, you know. You know, she's, you know, she's like 32. She looks like she's 50. Um, but what, what, uh, Sorry. I want to, I want to, since my, since my brother is a teacher, there is an importance though that you've probably, you probably recognize about, uh, having a person that looks like yourself Yeah. in a position like that. No, it's it's very important, um, and I commend the people who go out there and do it. Um, you know, there's some schools like, like uh, I still sub to this day every now and then, and there's some schools I go in, and you know there'll be young African American children, and the eyes light up. They're like, oh, because they they've they, they haven't see you. Yeah, they they You're see present. me. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a black male. They see me. They're excited. Maybe they don't have a black male in life, or maybe they don't see that many of them, and they're excited. And, you know, they'll come up, they'll give me a hug, they just they just saw me. You know, I've even gone to some schools, and at first it was funny to me, uh, the teacher would be, would be like, hey, we got a treat today. And I'm like, what are they talking about? They're like, we got a black person. I was just like, oh, <laughs> oh man. But oh they didn't mean it with, you know, in a bad way. So I understood what they meant. Ayat Nieves. Every year, the pay gap between white workers and black women grows larger. Jasmine Tucker is with the National Women's Law Center and got into why that is with Dave Diebel. It's not a matter of, of like black women choosing certain kinds of jobs. You know, they are overrepresented in the low paid workforce, but um, there are other sort of things at play there, right? They're... um, what we what we see is that there's a there's a wage gap in 94 percent of occupations even if they're choosing um a high paid job a low paid job like we're still seeing that black women are overrepresented and you know in the pandemic um we have seen black women more likely than any other group to be on the front lines of the pandemic you know continuing to provide child care you know grocery store services like all of these essential services and even in those jobs, we saw black women were paid less. So I think we definitely need to be doing more um, to hold employers accountable for for that equal pay. Um, but there are other things that I think we could do as well. Employers could um, sort of step back and, and um, get out of employees' way. I think right now we're seeing a lot of people resistant to go back to February 2020. Where the economy really wasn't working for a lot of a lot of folks, and especially black women in, in these, um, you know, sort of underpaid and undervalued roles that they've continued to work in throughout the pandemic, providing services, right? And so we've seen a lot of movement um, on the unionizing front, and collective bargaining is a great way um, for workers to to sort of bind together and um, bargain for better pay, for more benefits. Um, right, we're, we're we're two and a half years into the pandemic, and we still don't have guaranteed paid leave. 
so these workers, right, if they get sick or their kids get sick or, right, and they need to take time out of, of the workforce to provide that care, and we're seeing, right, <laughs> that's disproportionately falling to women, um, they're not able to do that and, and have a guaranteed job when they, you know, when they're no longer providing that care. Um, so there's, there's things that we need to do, like provide guaranteed paid leave um, for those folks. We need to make sure that we are investing in childcare, um, like it's actually infrastructure. People are not able to go to work without, you know, providing care. They can't, they can't get to work without a road to get to the, you know, to their workplace. They can't go to work without a safe place for their children to go. Um, and this wage gap means that black women are even less able than, you know, white women or other women to afford that care because their wages are lower. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a really tricky one because we're simultaneously asking, you know, parents to pay an arm and a leg for the care and underpaying, you know, the yeah. the very female dominated child care workforce. So, so this is sort of a myth. You're list, you're looking for some policy changes in addition mm-hmm. to uh, forgive me for putting it this way, for poking or badgering the employers. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that we're going to need some we're going to need some policies, some laws in place that's going to hold those you know those employers accountable, and they will have right if they if they are breaking the law and not paying employees equally, then there's some course of action. There's there's legal action that folks can take, um, and that often does you know, mean something to employers. They don't want to lose, you know, all of the legal fees and whatnot that they would have to pay. They want to be compliant with the law. Um, so I do think that that would go a long way to help. You've just uh, brought up the next thing I was going to ask you about, and, and this is really more for discussion than it is me just being naive, but isn't there a law against this sort of thing? Uh, you said earlier that among full-time year-round workers, black women typically make 67 cents for every dollar paid to white uh, non-Hispanic men. Isn't that mm-hmm. illegal? Aren't there anti-discrimination laws? I, I guess what I'm asking, and this is maybe where the naivete comes in, if these laws are on the books, why does this situation still exist? Right. I think, so what we do need is like an equal pay law that is like at the federal level. There's lots of states that have um, that have equal pay laws like this, but not every state, right? We need something like the Paycheck Fairness Act, which is going to... Um, sort of be the law of the federal land and ensure that, 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 that there will be less of this. I think there will always be a little bit, you know, of this happening. And, you know, I think employers will explain away um, some of the issues or discrepancies that we see in some way. And I think, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still <laughs> try to put something in place that will close this gap, right? I mean, 67 cents is not enough, Um and there's a there's a lot that we can do to to get it closer to parity, and we have to do it. And is it a matter, as you mentioned earlier, of just litigate, litigate, litigate? Well, like I said, I think we need this multi pronged approach. Um, I think in the you know we've talked a little bit about companies or employers doing doing stuff. I think in 2020 there was a lot, right? There was this sort of racial reckoning um where i think some some folks who had never sort of faced it before um sort of realized their role and a lot of employers right were 
were doing some performing on their social media platforms and other platforms and saying, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. And that, that was that was important to do. But I think what we really needed them to do was to look at how they're paying their workers and seeing if there are disparities by race, by gender um, in the same roles. We needed to see um, black workers and black women in particular you know, put in management roles, put in positions, you know, C-suite positions that are not just diversity, equity, and inclusion positions, right? We need to see those employers put put their money where their mouth is, right? And and create workplaces that are being led by black women. So, right, if, if white men continue to sort of be in the C-suite and to manage these workplaces, they're never going to be friendly enough for women and for women of color, um, who are bearing the brunt of this pandemic and who are more likely to be breadwinners than white women, um, the, the workplace is never going to work for them. And so we need to put black women in positions of power within these organizations so that they can bring about some change um, that is so desperately needed for those who are not in the C-suite. I had never thought of it until you mentioned it, but um, Black Lives Matter penetrated society. It was something that uh, I think the George Floyd knee on the neck was in everyone's living room. They couldn't avoid it. But at the same time, its focus was primarily police uh, police brutality. It didn't necessarily spark a broader discussion on all the other equity issues, this one included. Right. And, you know, the, the defund the police is, is definitely a big piece of the puzzle here, right? We are policing black folks at a, at a disproportionate rate and that takes away, you know, income from black families that, that takes away income for those communities. Um, you know, we're, we're losing so much by doing this policing and by not addressing mental health issues or other issues, right? There people are in poverty, right? Like these are, these are social issues that we need to be, fixing by investing in people and not in the police and policing them. Um, but it, but you're, but you're hitting sort of the, the nail on the head there. It's that there are tons of ways that we can do this and right. Centering black women in this recovery. I feel like the pandemic and this, and this racial reckoning have really laid bare a lot of the sort of structural and systemic inequities that we have in the economy, that we have in the workplace, that we have in all of these systems that are around us. Um, and if we're, if we are not going to fix them now when they are so clear to us, when are we going to fix them? Jasmine Tucker is research director at the National Women's Law Center. This is Buffalo What's Next, highlights of WBFO's weekday discussion on race, equality, and our shared humanity. Two recent issues that really feed off of each other. Touching on the same topic of sometimes how alone you can feel being Black in the corporate world. First, attorney Jason Daniels with Jay Moran. Being in college, you know, as soon as you get to like junior, senior year, you just don't see many people that look like you. And then, you know, in law school, there's not a ton. And in business school, there, there's even fewer. So it's like you kind of start to get the idea of, you know, if, if these are the schools that feed these kind of jobs, that there's not a lot of people like me doing these kind of jobs. So it's like you just start to prepare yourself mentally. 
and you know you start to realize this is what this looks like. Can you tell? Take us through that a little bit. Like you said, prepare yourself mentally. I mean, that's easier said than done. You know, I wake up every morning trying to prepare myself mentally for things, and I, I look back at the end of the day, and I whatever I prepared for didn't come come to fruition, and I didn't change. But what about for you? How how did you, like you said, prepare? for those challenges that were ahead that you knew were going to be coming. Yeah, you know, you just you just look at it. I mean, for me, kind of growing up, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer because I saw it on TV. Like, I watched a lot of court TV, and it became interesting to me. But, like, you know, coming up, I didn't know any lawyers or really have any experience and everything. It was just kind of, you know, what I had seen. And, you know, when I got to college, there were people, and you could just tell, you know, there were people who, you know, had parents who were lawyers and, you know, had different people who were in different professions and they had some of that guidance. And myself, I kind of just, you know, figured it out on my own. And, you know, I found good mentors, you know, as I got further on and I got into law school and stuff. But but early on, it was like, it was like, you know, just trying to navigate and to try to figure out, you know, what this looks like. So you had no specific role model, so to speak, as you were making your way along this this journey? Not really. Yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, I, this is what I want to do. I think I could be I think I could be good at it. You know, these people seem to do well financially. That was a goal of mine. And, you know, I just kind of pushed forward. And, you know, really, as I got older and as I, you know, got more school behind me and everything, I started to really get a better idea of, OK, you know, this is good. And like, you know, this person, you know, it looks this person looks like somebody who, you know, I should talk to or, or do something with and everything, but a lot of it really came organically. What makes uh, what makes a good lawyer? What makes a good uh, somebody who who does your kind of work? So, so it, there's differences, right? So, you know, there there are some lawyers who are you know trial lawyers and there's courtroom lawyers, and you know there's a specific skill set to do that. For me, kind of being more of an in-house corporate guy, it's really about people skills and it's about relationship building and it's about being able to you know, being able to relate to all kinds of different people and, you know, have conversations and build trust. Let's go through your journey just a little bit, if we could, and talk about some of the things that you experienced. Uh, obviously, you know, we hear about it on so many levels of society about the difficulty it can can be for people of color and lots of things, especially in a community like Buffalo that has a high level of segregation. What about your journey along the way? What can you share with us that you know wasn't necessarily all that easy? Yeah. So, um, you know, some things like, you know, I remember first becoming a lawyer and, you know, I would go into meetings with, you know, my with my paralegal who was an older white woman. And, you know, everybody would assume she was a lawyer. And I was and I was just and that went on for like a month or so. And then, you know, people kind of start to get to know you and everything. But, you know, you have other situations like, you know, I had a, a situation this was some years ago where, you know, we had a meeting. I forgot what the meeting was about. But after the meeting, I was having a conversation with another employee about a football game or something like that. And, you know, a more senior lawyer who was, you know, an older white woman pulled me to the side afterwards and told me that I didn't speak in a way that, you know, she felt represented the organization well. And for me, that was like was one of like the first kind of moments where it was that was that kind of happened directly. So it kind of set me back a little bit. But then, you know, you have to you have to kind of, you know take inventory of the situation, right? Like I'm, you know, a young black man and I'm in this department where, you know, our boss was a white woman and there's all these other, you know, everybody in the department's either a white woman or, you know, an Irish man. And, you know, if I, you know, get into it with this woman or something like that, you know, is it worth it? And sure. and how's it going to go for me? And, you know, you sometimes you run into those situations where people say, some, say you know, things that are off-putting. Like, for example, like, you know, I wear earrings. And early in my practice, you know, people would, you know, call it out or say something and everything. And it's just like, you know, you kind of have to laugh some stuff off that maybe you don't necessarily think is funny. 
Yeah. yeah. Just curious, back to that conversation about football. You you said that, but what specifically was just the way, just a couple of guys talking about a game and just you the know, way you were, the I passion have, of it all? You know, I, I, have, I have no idea. But, really? you know, we were just talking about the game and talking about some players and stuff like that and everything. And I forgot exactly what the conversation was, but, you know, evidently she didn't like the way I said something or something I, I said, we certainly, you know, weren't using any profanity or anything like that, but it was just, but you know, that was, uh, that was a person who, you know, she came from a, an, another law firm where it also, they, you know, I don't think they ever had any employees of color or anything like that. And she came in and she was a little older and you could tell like she was a little older school about things. And, you know, she, you know, she just had, you know, weird ways. But for me, it was offsetting because, you know, at that time I was a person I'd, been a lawyer for some time for you know at least a few years and you know went through law school and went through business school and I'd been you know involved in all kinds of meetings and everything and nobody had ever told me you know the way you speak isn't proper for you know for this organization so it was like yeah what yeah. about expectations as you were talking about that I was thinking when a man of color walks into a room, a professional room, or wherever, it doesn't have to be there. It can be there. But what about that? Do you have a sense of people's expectations? They they see you in there, you know. All, you know, then all of a sudden they may expect you to be something that you are not. Do you ever get that kind of a reaction? Not so much, you know. Especially early on, I would get like, you know, it would seem like people were surprised. Okay, I was there because I was, you know, a pretty young guy and everything. But that would happen a little bit. I don't necessarily know about expectations. I know for myself, you know, my expectations of myself. You know, I have a lot of, you know, white friends who are lawyers, and you know, we talk and we talk about like career and expectations and and stuff like that and everything. And I feel like I always feel like they're a little more at ease than me. Like you know, for me, I'm not necessarily uptight. Like you know, I've been doing my job for a while. I, I feel like I'm really good at it, but you know, there's always kind of this, I, you know, I think some people call it imposter syndrome, where it's like, you know, you feel like, you know, this could end any time or like <laughs> something could happen. And you just, you know, you feel like you have to be more careful than I feel like other people do. Okay. And, you know, sometimes it's a little limiting because, you know, you'll see an opportunity or something like that and everything. And you'll have to, you know, kind of dial it back in your head. While I feel like other people just feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. So this is supposed to happen. Wow. But yet you've been able to, to deal with that. Uh, can, can you take us through how you, again, go about dealing with the, that that sense that you know that you, maybe you can't proceed quite as aggressively or as uh, naturally as maybe other people can? Yeah. I, I think at this point, you know, I've been at it for long enough where... It's just part know, of who you yeah, are. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of a what happens happens things. You know, I'm... I, I operate under proceed until apprehended at this point. So it's like, you know, I just keep going further and I do the best work that I can do. And, you know, I, I try to surround myself with people who I know are good people. Like, you know, right now, you know, I'm in a situation at, at Catholic Health where my boss is a really good friend of mine, you know, and our CEO is a really good guy. And there's a lot of people who I know support me and support what we're doing. And I always like, you know, when I'm looking at opportunities and when I'm figuring out what I'm going to do next, that's really important to me. Like, you know, I always identify, I'm like, you know, I need to have a boss who's a person that I connect with, who's a person that I like and I know is going to support me. So I feel comfortable, you know, being me and proceeding and everything because, you know, you hear horror stories about people who end up in really bad situations. Sure. And, and I'm just like, you know, I've gotten to the point where, you know, my kind of peace of mind is more important than being in and making a little more money and being in a different position. So I've just, you know, I've just gotten to the point where, you know, it's it's really first it's about like the people and then it's about, OK, you know, this is the job that I like and everything. 
proceed until apprehended. I'm going to take that and okay. steal that from you. By <laughs> that. that is a memorable phrase right there for sure. Jason Daniels is our guest here on uh, Buffalo What's Next. He's the senior legal counsel at uh, Catholic Health. People use the term microaggressions yes. when it comes to dealing with uh, um, racial issues and such. What about for you? When you hear that term microaggressions, what do you think about? Oh, it happens all the time. Really? It, it, and the thing is, so, you know, it's not all intentional. Sometimes it's just, you know, somebody who's never spoke, never spoken to somebody who looks like you before or, you know, isn't comfortable and, and things like that. And I think, you know, at least the way I operate is, you know, I try to create a safe space for people to, you know, I don't take myself super seriously. So, you know, if I'm having a conversation with somebody and it's not somebody that I'm familiar with, you know, I just try to make them understand that, you know, it's, it's a safe space. So, you know, if you say something that's not, you know, that's not something that's proper or, or something like that and everything, like I'll. I'll tell you about it, but, you know, it's always in a, you know, in a friendly way. And, you know, very seldom is there, you know, very seldom professionally, at least, is there something malicious. Sure. You know, there's been a couple, you know, a couple small situations where there have been things that I felt was malicious. But most of the time it's just, you know, misunderstandings. And I think there's two ways you can handle it. You know, I've seen people take those little small misunderstandings and make huge ordeals out of them and really blow things out of proportion. But, you know, the other way, which I, I think is the better way to really just use those as teachable moments and, you know, educate and talk through things and, you know, build relationships in that way. Because ultimately, once you take it out of proportion, people go back into their, you know, back kind of into their shells and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, it's an interesting approach to it, and I would you would probably know well enough that not everybody would take it quite that right. Oh, right, not at right. all. Yeah, and, and I think and I think especially with what you've seen over the last couple of years with really like, you know, there's there's been a really big push and things like DE and I, and you know, after George Floyd and just a lot of what's going on, you see like a really big push and people are getting kind of really aggressive right away. And that's just not an approach that works with everyone. I mean, you got to think about it. You know, a lot of these people, right or wrong, they've operated in a professional environment where there's only been people that right. have looked like them in certain spaces for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So to expect that because this one thing happened, everybody's going to automatically change tomorrow, you know, it's not appropriate, you know, and it's not and it's not reasonable. So, you know. Obviously, people who have certain beliefs that are inappropriate, they have to change things and they have to, you know, really think about, you know, who they are, or what they're presenting, especially in the workplace. But but I think you kind of have to meet people where they're at a little bit and like bring them along. Interesting about microaggressions. You've, you've nodded very quickly at the affirmative that you understand it. If you wouldn't mind sharing what you when it comes to microaggressions, if you mind sharing maybe a couple of examples, because again, the, I think we have a lot of people who, since May 14th especially, want to make a difference. They want to make a difference. They want to make a difference in how they deal with people and how they can help this community move forward. What about some of those things that you've experienced? I think the low-hanging fruit one that happens all the time is when they introduce people of color to leadership positions, they immediately say, you know, how well how well they speak or, you know, <laughs> they present themselves really well. Or it's like compliments, but they're not compliments that they give to, you know, every other, you know, white man or woman sure. that's ever been in that role. And I you know, I see that all the time. And that's like one thing that I immediately call out. I'm like, you know, well, have we ever done it? Like, do we do this in other like, you know, why do we feel the need to say that this, you know, master's educated person speaks well? Obviously they speak well, right? Like you know, those kind of things, you know, a lot of the things, especially when dealing with women of color, the hair, you know, there's okay. like, you know, just comments like that and not necessarily malicious comments, but like, you know, assuming because, you know, black woman has 
straight hair that she's Indian or or something like that or you know just you know assuming that every you know black man over six feet plays basketball like right. you know just things like that or or listens to rap music or just you know things like that that I think come from a good place and maybe come from uncomfortability but you know it's not necessarily the kind of comment that you would make towards you know a person of a different color or background what advice would you have to uh, a, a white person just wants to go about doing things the right way but they're older or whatever. They've lived in, like you said, you know, mainly places of non-color throughout their their days. Well, I'd like to say, first and foremost, the fact that they're thinking that way is like a big step in the right direction, right? Because there are a ton of people who couldn't care less about this and, you know, really have no interest in changing the way they think or anything like that. So, you know, the fact that a person's forward thinking and like, you know, has those thoughts in the first place is is really good to begin with. One of my really close friends who was my original boss from a couple jobs ago and a great mentor of mine, you know, her and I are really good friends. We, you know, hang out, have dinner and stuff like that and everything. And, you know, she's a 64 year old white woman and I'm, you know, a young guy. And, you know, one thing that, that we connected on is she was just always really forward thinking. And she understood that she grew up in a time long before where, where things were different, but she was really open-minded and really kind of willing to accept that, you know, things have changed and, and understand that. And I think just kind of, you know, keeping your ears open and understanding things. And then also just trying to, you know, when people give you feedback, not necessarily taking, not necessarily taking offense to it, especially if the feedback is respectfully given, but also just kind of thinking about, you know, purposefully thinking about the things you say and why you're saying them, right? Like, you know, when you're writing an introduction for a new employee, who's a person of color, right? Look at, Look at the introductions you've written for employees before. And, you know, if there's a big difference, why? Why is that? Why am I saying this and I didn't and I didn't say this before? And it takes work because those aren't, you know, things that we naturally do, because I think we all come kind of hardwired with, you know, stereotypes and assumptions and things like that. Like there's times where, you know, I'll look at a person and I'll assume something because of the way they look or, or how they are. And that, you know, assumption isn't. And that assumption isn't correct at all. You know, one one thing I think about, I think about all the time, like kind of, you know, being a being a younger guy on the weekends, you go into work to pick up, you know, you go into work to pick up papers or something like that. And you're dressed in whatever you wear, you wear on the weekend. And the thing about, you know, being a lawyer, you know, it's like when you're in a suit or you're dressed up and everything, people look at you a certain way. But, you know, when you're in sweats and stuff, it's like it's different. And I've had some interesting interactions with, you know, security and with, you know, different people and stuff, just kind of off hours, come up to the office and pick stuff up. And those aren't the same kind of interactions that, you know, my, my white counterpart counterparts have had. So it's just kind of getting, you know, kind of getting through some of those things also. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting. And what about uh, maybe on a broader perspective? And obviously you're only really familiar when it comes to your particular organization yeah. and your efforts, but Overall, what you're seeing in the workplace landscape um, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what's your sense? Yeah, so so I see three different kinds of organizations, right? There's organizations who aren't doing anything at all, and it's just not a part of it. I see organizations who have, like, one employee, right? They basically, they pick said black person, make them chief diversity officer, and throw them into the pool. And many times that person's like the only person of color in their leadership team. Mm. And it's like, go do stuff, right? And that generally don't work, doesn't work. And then there's other organizations that, you know, 
you know, ours is definitely less mature in that area, but you see like M&T, they have, you know, a really good program and, you know, Glenn Jackson over there, he's really good and they do a lot of stuff and get a lot of people involved, but organizations that really try to engage lots of different people from different places in the organization and really kind of make it a, more of a team effort than a one person pushing it or than a, we're not doing anything at all. Our culture's fine. So, you know, those are the, the three different things that I see. And, you know, I think it's more of a Buffalo thing because, you know, I have friends that you know, live down in Atlanta, live in D.C., live in different places, and they are light years ahead of us to some extent. There are some organizations in those places, too, who sure. are also like, you know, we don't care about that either. So, you know, you get, you know, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bunch. It's interesting you bring up Atlanta. Uh, we had a conversation um, a while ago with uh, Madison Carter, who was here uh, for uh, some time as a, a reporter, and she moved to Atlanta. And one of the conversations I brought up was, you know, talk about the differences with Atlanta and Buffalo. And she reflected a lot of what you just you just mentioned there. But I'm curious for a guy like you, you're you're a professional. You're, you're you know obviously moved ahead in your your field very quickly. Is there an attraction to go to a place like Atlanta or Washington? For me, yeah. no, because I'm a Buffalo guy, Good. and like I love Buffalo, and it's just you know it's just where I am. But the one thing I'll say, I have relatives that live in Atlanta and everything, and the one thing that you know we that really, really, really is great in those places that we don't have here is you go to those cities and you see neighborhoods, affluent, black, and you know Hispanic, and like you just see full neighborhoods with people of color, right? And they're affluent and they're nice neighborhoods. And it's almost surprising because you know being from Buffalo, sure. if you go to a nice neighborhood, it's mostly white neighborhood. You know, I, I live in Williamsville, and you know <laughs> Williamsville, you don't really have many black neighbors, right? It's just <laughs> it's just how it is. So to go other places and to be like in nice areas and to see lots of people that look like you, it's like wow, like this is you know this is great. But for me, the thought process is always I would love to have this in Buffalo. Not necessarily I want to come here for this. That's Jason Daniels, a corporate attorney with Catholic Health. And now, Dave Diebel continues a similar discussion with Mark Overall from the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals. Part of the segment that Jay just had on before us was looking at how black people navigate positions of power in a corporate world that is oftentimes dominated more by whites. Does the Urban Professionals group address that or absolutely absolutely i mean one of the one of the <laughs> one of the re, one of the main benefits to a group like uh yp which we call young professionals sure, for sure. short is uh is oftentimes it creates that after work space for uh majority black and brown networking yes i mean but a lot of a lot of people are either one or one of the you know a very select group a small group of uh, minorities in their workspace. So yeah, so kind of navigating those spaces is actually one of the more common talking points. How large is the problem or the disparity, the difference? Um, I mean, it varies. I mean, a lot of a lot of young professionals do work in the nonprofit space. So in that area, it's a little. And that's an area that I imagine isn't quite as much of, if we dare say, an offender. Yeah. As the corporate world. As the corporate world, but in okay. the corporate world, when you're thinking about banks, when you're thinking about you know, large conglomerates, it can get uh, pretty, the numbers can be pretty low when it terms when it comes to black and brown representation. What's so, the spinoff effect of that? If the numbers are low, what problem does that then create in the community? Uh, oftentimes focus on outreach, uh, oftentimes approaches, uh, you know, sometimes uh, per- perfect example, uh, when a tragedy happens like May 14th. Sure. Um, 
oftentimes there are companies and organizations that want to give to support, which is great. I mean, but uh, oftentimes the people that they're either giving to or the people that are executing the support in a neighborhood like, you know, the Jefferson Fruit Belt area uh, don't look like the residents. And so, so so things like that would be often mitigated or even eliminated by having um, more representation at the table when it comes to planning, saying, hey, you know what, if we're going to send people into this neighborhood, we're going to de- deploy in people into this neighborhood. Let's let that re- let let them let those people look like the people that they're serving. We've had mental health counselors on this program say that for them, that has certainly been an issue. It is. Um, that there just aren't enough practitioners of color for people to feel comfortable talking about really sensitive issues with someone who doesn't look like them. Absolutely. Um, I also imagine it is an issue. um, They raised it this weekend. There was a summit this weekend on Saturday. Yes. Where they talked quite a bit about the idea that plans are good, progress is good, four months after the shooting, we have to do something. But darn it all, those plans, they said, have to come from people of color. That too often they're... I don't want to say imposed, but too often maybe they're brought to the table by others. I would agree. Okay. Um, I think I think oftentimes, and, and you can look throughout history, but you know, if 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 I, I don't want to get too contentious, but All right. I will say, if you look throughout history, I think it's always going to be problematic if you have a group saying, "Hey." We're from the outside, but we think these this are is what your, you should yeah, do. This is what these are your problems, and this is how you should solve them, right? And and I, I think that that'll be a little off-putting to any group of people. Historically, is that a scenario that occurs more with people of color? Do you think? Well, I, yes. I mean, it's with, with the Native Americans, with the Africans, with uh, Black people in America, with. Uh, I mean, Hispanic people. I mean, yes, it's it's been constantly a, a thing. So we try to we try to one thing I like about the Urban League is that, you know, we're not. We don't we, we're not separatists when it comes to who our allies are. Mm. We we like to form, you know, bonds and, and allyship with everyone. However, um, when it comes to the execution of how help and change should be implemented, we need to be at the forefront. And we ask to be at the forefront because we know the needs of our community. That's why, you know, shout out to Thomas Buford and the Urban League staff for putting that resource center right at Jefferson and Glidwood saying, hey, we're going to deploy these resources here because we know that this is ground zero and we know that this is a community that needs uh, those extra services. And uh, and I'll let me just say, say one more thing. Uh, YP was one of the groups that served as greeters at uh, Johnny B. Wiley mm. when because people were coming in for yeah. the free mental health consultations. Right, the but day the, of, the day yeah, after, the day at that whole the right. whole two weeks after. But the point is, the the clinicians didn't look like the residents, mm. so they wanted YPs and other organizations like that to say, "Hey, you know, welcome. We're glad you're here." While you're waiting, is there anything we can do for you? Because we look like the residents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mark Overall is here. He's president of the Buffalo Urban League's Young Professionals Group. You just mentioned Thomas Buford. He's president of the Urban League. We've had him here on the program before. But for folks that didn't uh, necessarily hear that program or don't want to go on and hunt it down online, give me the very quickest of recaps. What is the Urban League? So the Urban League, let me just say it, the National Urban League, was started in I think 1910, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. and Buffalo chapter is an affiliate of it. 
Uh, and it was it was founded for two reasons, two main reasons to, you know, the Great Migration, people moving from the south to the north and the Midwest and the west. And those people often coming from herb, uh, rural areas, you know, farmers, sharecropper, things like that. Mm. They needed jobs and housing. They were relocating from, you know, rural Alabama, rural Georgia, Georgia, rural Mississippi, moving to urban cities like Buffalo, New York City is where the headquarters is, places like that, Chicago, D.C. And it's okay. Now they're in urban areas since the Urban League. Yeah. And they need one, a place to live and they need to and they need places to work. So when the the organization was founded saying, hey, these are people overall, not everyone, of course, that uh, coming from, you know, blue collar farming backgrounds, they need to be trained on different areas of vocation. So it was founded to train them. So and then Buffalo chapter came in the 1920s. We're coming up on 90 years. Uh, our our anniversary is coming up. So and that's it. But it has since evolved past yeah. just housing and jobs to uh, entrepreneurship, to first time home home ownership, to, um, you know, adoption and foster care, to basically uh, trying to. I always nutshell it as saying the Urban League is exists to give every person, regardless of their color, access to the American dream. And that is, you know, a job that pays a decent wage to live in a good neighborhood, to raise your kids in a good area and to go to good schools. Oh, so. you just opened up the box, though. <laughs> um, is there generally a lack of access? And I'm, I'm asking it somewhat rhetorically because I think I know the answer. But tell me to what extent. Or there is a lack of access to the American dream. So when when you look at it, and 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 again, not trying to be too contentious, but I you know I can talk about oh, this come all on. day. We like con- sure. contentious. Sure, okay. okay. So so when it comes to when it comes to access, uh, I think Cornell West said it best. He said, you know, oftentimes we. America, the largest society, will say that, says, you know, hey, you can be great, you can be this, you can be that. But the overwhelming majority of people are, you know, have less than $100 a month after they play the, pay their expenses. They're, you know, a lot of people live from check to check. They're going to have their kids are in bad schools. And they put up these celebrities like Barack Obama and LeBron James and say, and we want we want the vast majority and the black masses to live vicariously through these mm-hmm. few celebrities. And that, so, so when you look at it as, yes, you know, do we have more black faces in high places? Yes, we do. But like Dr. West said, but yes, if you take every black face in a high place, he has 100 cousins on both sides of his family that live below the poverty line. So that's so that's why when you think about the access, you think about uh, is success widespread or is it very selective and limited? And I think that the answer overwhelmingly is the latter. That's Mark Overall. From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media, this has been Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Longer versions of all these interviews come to you each weekday on WBFO each morning at 10 with a replay each night at 9. The program is also available by subscription from wherever you get your podcasts. And every episode is on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for listening.